I'm gonna start recording. Okay, so we are recording on Zoom. And then going live to Facebook. Manage. So Andrew, have you been lived in Minneapolis all your life? No, I've lived in my home for a little more than a decade. I lived in Minneapolis prior to that, uh, here and there, and grew up right across the border in Edina, but I'm an Edina apologist, so I wasn't one of the rich kids. Uh, I've been working basically since I was 10 years old. Uh, grew up with a single mom, so. I have actually, um, I, I've been self-supporting since I was 16. I, I came out of foster care and it, it is a different vibe, but you know, it really is. If, if you, you know, people don't understand what, uh, what it's like sometimes to be, you know, having to work all your life and having, and not having any ease, you know, luxury, you know, like, you know, I think sometimes we make better leaders because we, uh, we actually know what the struggle is, <laughs> you know, like, you know, when people talk about, oh, those people don't want to, we're like, uh, I'm those people, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> I, you yeah, know? I remember like busing to uh, my job, like 30 plus right. hours a week at a grocery store after school and stuff and being there until, you know, nine at night and then um, going in at 6 a.m. on the weekends and and working like an eight and a half hour shift. And I think I only got paid like $28 for an eight and a half hour shift once all the taxes and the union dues were taken out. And I just remember it just seemed like impossible to get ahead. And, you know, you just work so hard and yeah, it just seemed like how do adults make this happen, you know? And I, and I mean, I was like really privileged to, um, you know, have a stable home and all of that. So, um, and yet it's still like, wow, I can't believe like what it would be like even, you know, for folks that don't. Exactly. So you can go live to Facebook so I can start the face um, the party and I just do a little tea up. I don't know where Carlo is. We have the coolest young person, he's 14, but um, high school's getting ready to start for him and he just switched schools. So he may be unavailable this morning. Um, I don't know if you saw the amazing pictures with him and Kamala. Um, Lauren, did I send that to you? Mm -hmm. You know, his older brother, which Andrew and Sarah's heard the story, you know, almost died of cancer. And he, they're, the whole family, Rebecca Riley, who's one of my best friends, was the deputy public defender for LA County. And her brother is Boots Riley out of Oakland. And they're both big deals. And so they're this very political family. And when, um, when his older brother Riley almost died, um, all Riley wanted to do, so he met Kamala Harris, Obama, like all these politicians that he wanted to meet. And there are these fabulous pictures of um, Kamala talking to Carlo, like two years ago, like three years ago, when he was like, I don't know, like 12 or 10, asking, talking about the federal budget. <laughs> it was, they're just, and, and she is like leaning in and they're like, like she's not shaking his hand like she's happy well you know carlo right like you don't think carlo's gonna let her get away with oh hi little boy right he's gonna ask some insightful questions so we hope he jumps in but um it's a little bit crazy because he's in high school because we hire 14 year olds sometimes to work with us because 
that's who we are. So once you push that button and I see it pop up, I can oh, go to Facebook. So. All right, goodness, you ready? Or, yep. Okay, gonna start in three, two, one. Hey everybody, it's Marnita here at Marnita's Table. I'm gonna do it again. <laughs> Hi everybody, it's Marnita from Marnita's Table. And as you know, we have been talking here at our podcast, Safer, um, about what it takes to make a community and people feel safe in their bodies. Um, and we have a very special guest today, Andrew Johnson, who is the Minneapolis City Council person for Ward 12. Hey, say hi, Andrew. Hello. Yay, and we're gonna get into some questions, but as always, I do a little tee up at the beginning of our conversation together. And um, today I just want to say that we need to be coming together across neighborhood across, not just within our neighborhoods, but across neighborhoods and across regions. Um, uh, we were back channeling a little bit, having conversations before we got started. And Andrew um, Johnson, not our producer, Andrew, Andrew I, who I'm calling white chocolate for the rest of the podcast. Um, are you offended by that? Is that okay if I do that or, or, or like? Not a, no, that, that is awesome. It's a callback to Coco and Lala's podcast. Exactly. So for those of you, that's an inside joke from our cooking podcast when we all had to have food names. Um, and uh, that we're so excited that Andrew is here today. Um, our, our Councilman Johnson is here today to talk about Ward 12, which is very neat near 38th in Chicago and very near um, sort of in the epicenter of where this conversation about community safety has originated. And so we're gonna catch up with him on what's happening in, in the neighborhood that he represents and serves and to hear a little bit of his life story. Uh, but we always start, you know, by going around and doing a quick check-in and welcoming everybody. And I'm gonna do a different check-in today because I'm bored with what makes you safe in your neighborhood because I've heard Lauren and, and uh, Andrew's answered, uh, white chocolate's answer to this many times. And so today I'm just gonna open with, how are you feeling today? Are you hopeful? Are you optimistic? Are you down? Like what's happening in your personal world now that you're joining us? And I'm gonna throw it to Andrew Johnson, Councilman Johnson. How are you feeling today? Welcome. I'm feeling okay. I don't know, every day is like ebbs and flows. Uh, you know, there's just, so much we're dealing with on so many fronts and so it can be a little daunting at times um, but also energizing because you get an opportunity to really make uh, people's lives better and to make the world around you better and so um, it's it's trying to always uh, center yourself on that and, and be mindful of that and um, utilize that to really keep going uh, when feel uh, exhausted right so um yeah I'm, I'm it's it's a mix right but good and bad yin and yang wonderful oh just a second i'm, I'm responding throw it over to um oh elijah's joining us um throw it over to either white chocolate or lauren and they'll share what they're feeling right now i can jump in um so Right now, um, your yesterday, um, I was kind of moving throughout all of Uptown and bouncing around a couple different restaurants, just kind of hanging out. And I've really noticed that small businesses are starting to find a way a little bit and, and catch a groove. 
um, whether it's having outdoor seating or, or um, you know, just making different variations, checking temperatures before you walk into uh, a restaurant, um, that type of thing. I think it's uplifting. I, uh, I was going to answer the question, um, what makes me feel safer? Um, I've been, I've been kind of reiterating every week how food and sitting around a dinner table makes me feel safer um, and going out to eat with family and friends and being around community. And Aswar last week mentioned he feels safer in community when there's longstanding small businesses around the area, ones that have been there for 70, 80 years. And you know, if they're still here, then this must be a good community because there's a reason why they're here for this long standing time frame. Um, so yesterday I was kind of doing, I was walking down Lindale uh, at a couple coffee shops and whatnot, and just kind of like they, these, these longstanding businesses, whether they've only been there for five years or uh, 20, 30 years, they're finding a way and hopefully uh, they can continue to, you know, gain traction and um, still be there um, through this pandemic. And I'd like to pass it to Laura. Thank you, Andrew. That's really interesting. Um, I've kind of been thinking about something similar. Um, I was thinking about the election um, and just what will, what will happen after November comes and goes, what will next year be like and how sometimes it's, it's easier for things to remain the same, even if you're not totally happy with them, but at least you know what to expect. Um, and I agree. I think that having some sort of stability in community, especially, feels really good, um, especially as, you know, we're in 2020, things are changing so rapidly. Um, and so I think that I'm finding stability, yes, with my community, but also with my friends and family. Um, and also the amazing privilege that I have, you know, working at Marnita's table. Um, and like you said, Andrew Johnson, um, knowing that at least you're contributing some sort of good and that that's what keeps you going. I'm feeling, I'm feeling that way too every single day. So, and I will pass it to Elijah. I was hoping you were gonna pass it to me because I'm outside and there's a garbage truck. Uh, kind of aud audibly in the distance, but she's moving. She's moving. Okay. I think we're good. Um, well, what am I feeling? I am feeling, uh, not to be a downer, I'm being a little bit pessimistic um, in terms of the upcoming election or civic um, the civic engagement of our generation and one, whether it's going to be high or low and two, the extreme expectations being placed upon us with regards to whether it is high or low. Um, that is kind of uh, putting me into kind of a a, a white-hot flames on the side of my face rage right now. I am right now. Yeah, I'll pass it along to uh, Carlo. Who uh, I believe we're just doing... Uh, how are you feeling right now, right? Yep, we're just doing a check of Carlo! I loved your pictures with Kamala. 
Like I'm sharing them with everybody. I just have to tell you. We're just talking about how we're feeling right now. How are you feeling right now? Um, I'm, well, I, I, I'm feeling okay, generally speaking. Um, I'm still taking in the new news, uh, which in case anybody hasn't heard, and I'm sure you all have, uh, Kamala Harris was selected as the running mate for Joe Biden. Um, and as Marnita said, I have met her twice. Uh, she's always been polite in my meetings. She's answered some questions uh, for me. She used to go to school with my mom, I believe, law school. Uh, so that's how we've gotten together. I, I, don't, I don't like to say casually because it's not a casual thing. We've met twice uh, on very rare occasions. Uh, it, it, I'm, I'm not out consorting with queens and princesses and such. It's, yeah. Um, oh, you're consorting with us, baby. You're definitely consorting with queens. <laughs> you're, true that, true that. You are right, yeah. Um, well, uh, I, I'm feeling conflicted about the situation. Uh, because I do like Kamala, and I, I know for a fact that she's very competent. I have no doubt that she's very competent, uh, and I have no doubt that she intends to do uh, the best she can for the people and African Americans and women, which is very important. Um, but I'm, I'm also not in a total agreement with her past and uh, her, her politics. Uh, but regardless, uh, I'm glad to finally have it confirmed because I, I had speculated Kamala was going to be VP for a long time, as many people have. Um, so I, I'm, I'm just glad to have it confirmed, and I'm glad to have that information. Uh, so I'm just taking that in right now. Well, lovely. So, a Andrew, um, thank you so much, Carlo. Uh, hey, Andrew uh, Johnson, Councilman Johnson, coming back to you. Um, and speaking of even the elections and the, what's happening in your local neighborhood, because so much, you know, Nothing about this year is ordinary, right? Like this, I mean, from the uprisings to COVID. Um, and in fact, you know, I've been trying to say to people, and Marnita's table is completely nonpartisan, but I've been saying, even if all you care about is the post office and the CDC, like you don't even have to care about any other any other political thing. Um, our our family and we are, I think, ward. I can't remember. We're ward seven or six. We're Lisa Goodman's neighborhood that we live in. Um, and uh, we all sent in our request for ballots in plenty of time to get them. My husband got his a day before the election. Um, my son got his a day after the election and I haven't received mine at all yet. Um, and so my son and I walked up to Kenwood Elementary where he went to school and, uh, and actually uh, voted because we didn't want to miss our opportunity to vote, but it was very concerning that even in a very, what I consider a liberal city and all these things, how you know, we all, we sent them in, in the same, we walked to the mailbox, we all filled them out as a family. So they were all done together and we mailed them together and I still haven't received mine. And it's, you know, and so that's very concerning. And so, um, Andrew, like, I mean, are you guys even talking about any of those sort of the election issues at the council or are you more working more on neighborhood issues um councilman johnson oh certainly the elections are a, a key thing that the city does it's a core service and so that's really concerning that you had that experience i honestly hadn't heard of anybody experiencing that and so um i would love to follow up on that and actually have that looked into and, and why that happened and 
what the status is um, because it's it's critical that people have the option to mail in, especially uh, given the pandemic. I mean, it's just a, a health and safety issue. Um, so yeah, we want want people to be able to do that um, very easily and, and have it be very smooth. I would say um, the biggest concern around all that right now is more related to the postal service and just the um, delays <clears throat> in processing that have occurred. And so really we were encouraging folks who had received their ballots to get them in as quick as possible and not wait until the last you know, few days, um, but really even like 10 days in advance, put them in the mail. Um, the other kind of piece is just around capacity and infrastructure for processing all those and then setting public expectations too that for close races, there's not going to be uh, immediate results in some cases. So um, it's, you know, it's a big change to try to move a majority of folks who are showing up in person over to mail-in and then for those that still show up in person, ensuring that it's a safe environment. So I know we even consolidated some polling locations and things like that. Well, Ward 12, tell me the boundaries of Ward 12, like how long you've been a count, tell us about you as a council person and what you're, yeah. Yeah, so Ward 12, uh, if you're looking at a map of the city and there's some cuts here or there, but approximately it is Cedar Avenue to the river and then 40 or 34th Street all the way down to Highway 62. And so on a map, of the city, it is truly the southeastern part of the city. Uh, and I've been in office for, geez, almost almost seven years, six and a half years. Uh, prior to serving, I got involved with my neighborhood association, Longfellow Community Council. I ended up running to be on the board. I was on the board uh, for a year and then ended up in a leadership position as president of the organization for another year and really that's where I learned you could, because uh, I was always interested in what was happening at a federal level uh, and also to a lesser degree at a state level, but really hadn't had a lot of experience at a local level. And that's where I really learned the ability and power of being able to get involved locally and see changes happen in your community, our community, and um, just loved it. and. I uh, had a background as a systems engineer, owned my own small business, and um, just, you know, couldn't, couldn't get enough of working on behalf of the community. And so uh, also through that, I saw uh, different council members and how they worked and, and saw that, you know, there was an opportunity to step up and represent the ward and, and contribute in some ways that I thought could be used um, and useful. Um, and, and thought there's no way I'm gonna win, uh, but I'm gonna run anyways, uh, you know, and it resonated with people. What I was talking about resonated with people and I worked really hard and, you know, uh, ended, up, ended up here. So, and it's been really great. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's a very tough demanding job. Uh, there's never enough time, there's too much stress uh, but at the same time, being able to look around the community and, and know that you made a difference is really, um, for me, it's like a, a selfish or like a positive selfishness um, is the way I describe it. Because it's like, you know, everybody's motivated by different 
things, right? And um, I think some people like might, you know, be interested in this for whatever it may be, right? Like the title or this or that, or, you know, um, that sort of thing. For me, the, the selfish part of it is like, I, I personally just like get goosebumps and feel great, like knowing that something got resolved um, that helps make the world a little better place. And so <laughs> that's, I consider that selfish, but um, I, I enjoy it. So the uprising. Yes. Um, what do you, you know, you, you're making decisions. I don't know what your vote was. Um, you can tell us what your vote was relative to, you know, people are confused about all this talk about defunding the police or, you know, uh, tell us what your observations. And now I have a question to ask even before that. So Cedar, so are you all the way, like, are you where KFAI is? Like all the way that part of Cedar or more south of that? Like, so Cedar would be, uh, and it kind of cuts over in Standish Erickson. So there I am 36th Street down to Highway 62. And Cedar, I cover um, from 36th down to really uh, the parkway, I believe is the, is the cutoff I mean, there. The, the river parkway. Uh, the Minnehaha Creek Parkway. The Minnehaha, okay, got it. Yeah, 36th to Minnehaha Creek Parkway on Cedar on the eastern portion. Yes. So you're in a fairly diverse neighborhood, but also it's kind of a blended neighborhood, right? Like, I mean, it's, yeah, the ward overall is predominantly white homeowners. Um, but absolutely, we have. Um, diversity in the community. I mean, we've got a lot of renters and, and we, uh, so it's not just homeowners. Um, we've got, I think the, I don't want to get the stat wrong, but I think that's like the second or third um, largest population of uh, indigenous people in the city. So, I mean, there's, it's not just like the story of, you know, um, white homeowners, but predominantly I have to say, I'm I'm in a, a very white ward uh, as a black woman, um, and we just had a meeting where um, somebody in my family was profiled for being black mm. on our front walk, literally. Um, and we are literally the block captains in our neighborhood, and I mean that like we throw national night out. We have a we're mile three of the marathon, and as a black woman who lives in a predominantly white neighborhood, who had a black, has a black son. I made a point of knowing every single neighbor. Like I literally know all my neighbors and um, we've had some things happen. We used to office out of the house. And at one point, one of our young employees was outside and a white workman stopped him and said, is that a halfway house? Um, because he saw all these professional black and brown people coming in and out of our doors, you know, it's, it's kind of, and so this white man rode by on his bike and said, uh, he demanded that my son, who was sitting on the front porch, minding his own business, reading his phone at two in the morning, he demanded that he explain himself. Wow. And identified himself as Neighborhood Watch. And my husband was actually on the KNO Kenwood Neighborhood Association board. And it was very interesting. So we were having a neighborhood meeting, and because my husband was on the board, it like we we're those people who call like 
we know our council person. We show up at neighborhood meetings. We are engaged people. And I, 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 I'm going to say this. Uh, I was so unimpressed with Lisa Goodman. I will vote for anybody but Lisa Goodman. I was so enraged by what she had to say because she thought she was addressing largely an audience of white homeowners who were worried about crime, when in fact what I was worried about was vigilantism and white people I didn't know in my neighborhood identifying themselves as neighborhood watch. She didn't ask any questions and then she became defensive. Yes, Lisa, if you see this, I'm angry at you. Um, and you know, I've known her for years. We've done National Night Out. Um, and I really felt that it was pandering to the fears. You know, we have a, an encampment here at Kenwood Park because of COVID. And, you know, whites have been very concerned about crime. And now I've learned that the primary crime they're worried about is that white men are coming into the neighborhood and sexually predating on the young women who are engaging in survival sex. And so that makes me ask like, well, why aren't we all getting out our own tents and ringing them? Like, why aren't we protecting them? That's not them bringing crime to us. That is, that is them being vulnerable people and us allowing them to be targets of crime, right? Like that's not the same thing. Um, and so are you doing anything in your neighborhood in Ward 12 to bridge differences, say between, you know, the white homeowners and say those of us who might be more transient or might be of other colors or poorer. You know, I, I do see this big difference between how we treat white homeowners um, as being important and property as being much more important than say a 14 year old girl. And I'm very sensitive to this also, I live on Dakota land. And a lot of the people who right now are in encampments are Dakota. This is their original indigenous land. So how are you guys handling that over there in Ward 12, Andrew? Well, I think at like a basic level, uh, everything is like communication and reminding people and talking about this and having intentional conversations around that. I mean, for years, you know, whenever issues of like crime and safety come up in, in public meetings, like it's the, the go-to thing that we have to talk about is like, Hey, are you calling 911 because the person walking through your alley is um, behaving in a way, right? Like going up to cars and like trying the door handle on cars? Or are they, are you calling 911 because there's a, a black, a young black kid walking through your alley who like doesn't look right? You know what I mean? And so it comes even from like challenging your own basic. Uh, internal biases and in having that. And I think that, you know, that's one of the things I try to do is, is um, for my fellow white homeowners, being able to connect and speak with them in a way about these issues and, and these problems and try to get them to um, have that level of self-reflection and awareness um, around how they contribute uh, to, to racism. And uh, that is a key part of the communication side. Then even on like um, just the action side is really addressing the ways in which we have uh, engaged in systemic racism, even right here in the ward through policy and being intentional about um, reversing that. And so I didn't think about like the fact that Ward 12 is home to the first uh, housing project for families experiencing homelessness in our city um, that provided great transition housing. I mean, this is like three bedroom units that are 
as low as $75 a month. There's wraparound service and support. And most of the community was extremely welcoming of that. And I was really proud of the community for that. Um, and yet there's still uh, racism that occurs around that. I mean, a lot of the conversations around like, you know, even kind of like the um, paternalism, right, is, uh, is what I see a lot of. And, and so you'd have um, folks saying things like, well, these people need to, you know, watch their kids. How are we going to know their kids are going to be running around in the street and hit by cars and all of that? And so this housing project shouldn't be put here. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure those parents care just as much about their children as everyone else. Like this is how, you know, and so some of this stuff is like, you can really see, you know, the, the racism in it, the prejudice and, and being able to talk through that and, and, in a way, you know, in, in it tries to maximize the connection with the individual to get them to change, right? Because it'd be easy enough to just say like, hey, that's racist, don't say that, right? But I think where you can actually make a breakthrough is like sitting down with somebody and, and like talking that through and helping them understand in like a, a way that hopefully you leave them at least like in a better place so that they're more aware of that, right? And that's hard work, right? It, it's because it is like, in many cases, like one-to-one -one type work. And so you're just constantly like trying to make progress with many individuals, right? Um, but it, it adds up. Yeah, no, and I think that's that speaks kind of directly to the exact work that we do here at the table. Um, I don't know, I feel like Lauren, um, I don't know if you feel qualified or uh, e you are qualified. If you <laughs> feel what eager, are you to... in, Lauren. By the way, Rosa, what ward are you in? I'm an eight. You're an eight, so you're an Andreas. Okay, good. Mm -hmm. I did have a question though, because um, I'm just thinking about what you guys are talking about, and you know, I I like to explore a lot. So whether that's walking and running, biking, etc. And the question I always get is, are you from around here? Um, and so because I get that question, I try to get as involved as much as possible. And um, one of the things that I, you know, I'm trying to be very consistent at what um, is voting. And it's funny, Marnie, that we, my family had a the exact same situation happened to us where we tried to get our ballot early and um, that didn't work. We got it too late to mail in. So then we tried to drop it. But then where the news said that the drop off was, it wasn't there and we were circling, couldn't find it. And then we tried to do it online, but then it wasn't accepted. So then we had to just say, we're going in, um, we're going in. And, you know, we were just thinking about, wow, for a lot of people would have given up at the first barrier. Um, and we went through three different hoops. And so even trying to get in, engaged in that way has been somewhat of a challenge, especially during this time. Um, but I, my question, I guess, is, is for other young indigenous black and brown people in the, in the community that are in these neighborhoods, is there, and, and this is speaking from ignorance, I actually don't know, like, are, is there any type of like, doesn't even have to be a program, but I guess opportunities to get involved where people are specifically looking to engage them on the neighborhood level. Yeah, there are, you know, I think it would probably be helpful to have more of like a consolidated resource 
list around that or like more of a kind of directory of organizations, but I definitely know there are a lot of different groups um, from intentional efforts by some of our neighborhood associations to uh, different nonprofits to faith groups um, to even opportunities around like jobs, whether it's the, the park board or um, whether it's with the VA or whether it's mentorships uh, with different small businesses. So there's a lot of different opportunities, but I do think about this in, in like kind of the way that I think of um, like public safety. You know, even today, there's a lot of different alternatives to calling the police, um, whether it's COPE or St. Stephen's uh, outreach uh, team. And, you know, the problem is there's when you call 911, you're not going to get COPE, you're not going to get St. Stephen's, you're going to get the police. And so what we really need is to integrate in those different service providers into one number so that people are able to call and, and get, you know, the appropriate response. And, and it's kind of similar, right, is that um, in a lot of cases, you know, there's, it's, it's not easy to find out um, necessarily what all the opportunities are and where to go. And, and this is like the theme of a lot of my conversations with the city um, this, this year and frankly for years has been communication. I mean, I, you know, around, we get a lot of questions around like the homeless encampments, right? Um, uh, and, and I had a push to get our, our city staff to stand up a webpage to even talk about what we're doing because there is actually a lot of good work to support um, those in encampments and help work to get them into dignified, stable housing. Um, and, and a lot of it, you know, if you're not communicating it publicly, people don't know, right? And, and they don't know what the efforts are. They can't see where the gaps are. They can't find out how they can support um, this work. And so it's kind of like on all these things. And, and I know, Marnita, you we're bringing this up and I hope we can revisit this more because I'm trying to give a quick answer and I'm a long answer kind of person, but, uh, um, we're, you know, long answer, we're long answer kind of people here too. Well, even around like rebuilding, um, you know, from the unrest or around uh, uh, community safety and transforming that and the different efforts that are going on in parallel. Like we need to get that even crime related information, right? There's like so much fear out there in the media and like these kind of narratives going on. And what we need to do is get factual information out um, to residents in a very easy way so that they can access that and, and understand what's going on, what steps are being taken, and put it into context for their own lives and how they can be a part of the solution as well um, and be empowered. And, and, you know, frankly, I think the city falls short on a lot of fronts with communication. You know, it's interesting at the table, we have a thing we call the resource wall. And whenever we go into a new community, we ask the community to self create a resource hub, basically. Um, and we actually had to build it on our own website whenever we go with, like it might be about, do you need resources for healing from trauma? Or you need resources to learn how to plant a community garden or like, um, because we were finding that there wasn't actually one place. And um, interestingly enough, I just had an experience. I just got an email from next door. I don't, use next door very often. I call it cranky old racist white people next door or cranky old white people door. Uh, like, um, you know, because um, when I, I was profiled at our neighborhood dog park, the Lake of the Isles dog park last October, um, two white people came into the park with unruly dogs. Um, and and, and they're, actually their dogs weren't unruly. Their dogs were terrified of dogs 
and the humans attached to them were terrified of dogs. And so when any dog got near them, they started screaming that the dogs were killing their dog. And I calmly suggested that maybe they shouldn't be at the dog park. And they started screaming that, that I was ruining, my type of people was ruining in the neighborhood. And then they called the police and I, I didn't, and one of them, a white man got right in my face and started screaming at me that I was the type of person that was destroying the neighborhood and that they needed to put down my vicious dog. And it was, I'm 58 years old. I'm sure you've heard of me before we even reached out for an inner, like, you might've heard of Marnie Stable or me in the neighborhood. Like, anyway, two S police SUVs pulled up. Officers got out with hands on weapons because they'd been informed that there was a dangerous out of control black woman with vicious dogs. Um, and immediately when the cop got there, uh, the lead cop was like, <laughs> I said, I stepped forward and said, hi, I'm Marnita. And she said, wait, Marnita of Marnita's table? Like she'd actually heard it. But if it had been my son, who's a young black man or Carlo or Lauren, who often used to walk my dogs, like they wouldn't have been able to say, I'm, you know, like I have a name at least in my neighborhood, right? That somebody knows me. And these people went on next door and posted that my dogs had viciously attacked these people's dog. And um, what it looked like to our vet, they posted a picture and it was one stitch on the side. And I took it to my vet. I was like, my, I was there. I didn't see my dog do this. And he goes, that looks like it happened from a rock or a stick. Like he was like, that's not what dog bites look like. I'm sure when she took it to the vet, they were just willing to placate her and say whatever. But that, that is not, you, you have a healthy dog. He would have, he said, I would have said your dog would have, disemboweled her 20 pound dog. Like that is not what a vicious dog, and she was like vicious dog attacks, you know? And, and dogs do get rough. Like they can get little scratches and nicks, but that wasn't even what happened. Like they weren't even playing. It didn't get to that level. And so I had, I had waited and they had posted and they'd said horrible things about me on next door. And so I went back after George um, Floyd and um, wrote about my experience as a black woman in my own neighborhood and Nextdoor took it down. Um, and I found out that nationally Nextdoor had been taking down any posts that hashtag Black Lives Matter or any posts about Black lived experiences in neighborhoods, basically flagging them for being rude and not civil. And so I went out, posted what the real story was on their original thread, and the white guy came out and you know, he reported me and, and all I said to him basically was, it is illegal to make a false police report. And I just got an email, they reviewed it and they came back and they said, you are trolling and being uncivil and unkind and you're not being a good neighbor. And it was really funny because I realized like next door needs training on this, right? Like next door could be the kind of hub that had that kind of information and you're like, they could be partnering, right? But instead they're reinforcing the biases of, um, of white supremacy by, all the moderators are volunteer, uh, you know? And so who can volunteer to sit and read everybody's posts? Somebody that has enough wealth and time. You couldn't have done that when you were a 10 year old, could you, Andrew? You already shared what you're like, right? So it's not somebody who even has access to the working class probably, right? And so like Carlo, I don't know what you're thinking about some of the things we're talking about or white chocolate or Elijah, like throw out some more things, but I just like, there are some tools that are out there but so many of them, again, leave out black and brown perspectives or voices. They, it's, um, I just was having a conversation. It was about, a new study came out about black women's hair where they did a test and they, they had all the same resumes and had people go in for interviews. And 
black women who had natural hair, just their own natural hair, um, were 50% less likely to be given a job than a white woman or a black woman with straightened hair. Like, and, um, and all these white men were coming out and posting about, well, it's because we need conformity. And it's because, you know, black people's hair looks like it has bugs in it. And it's like, no, it doesn't. Like, but it's just acceptable to say crazy ass, I'm sorry, crazy shit like that. Like, it's, it's actually okay. <laughs> I love your smile, Carlo. I'm watching your face. I always like it when I say something that makes you smile. But, um, so, you know, like I'm looking at Carlo. Carlo has fabulous hair. Like, and by the way, on this call right now, other than maybe Elijah, um, I don't know. Hey, White Chocolate, who do you think is the hardest person on the call right now? Like, you know. It's the proudest? I said the smartest. The, the smartest. The oh, Carlo. I think Carlo and Elijah got me beat. Uh, and, you know, Carlo, you I'm going to give Carlo the nod on you, Elijah. Sorry. I know you're rolling your eyes over there. <laughs> He's on mute. Yeah. <laughs> can't hear you. Oh, I haven't done my uh, precocious monologue in a hot minute. so Right. I haven't, I haven't seen you in a while. It's been too long. It's been too long. <laughs> but, you know, like, Carlo has this big, amazing afro. And, you know, like, we had Carlo on as a guest, what, two months ago? And hired him after his first appearance with us. Because, you know, he was so talented. And it's kind of like... Are you interested in brilliance, talent, and innovation? Or are you interested in whatever you have a conception of conformity, right? Like, and so, you know, how do you bridge a neighborhood like yours, Andrew? Or, but I want Carlo to speak for a second and Elijah about some of these things. Uh, well, I'd like to throw a bit of my own personal experience. Um, uh, I'd say that, it, like, as we've all been saying for a bit now, uh, even though there are these resources, uh, there aren't enough, of course, but even though there are some of them, uh, not only are they often corrupt or otherwise don't work, uh, it, they, there's also just a stigma attached to them that they will not work for people like us, for people that look like us. Uh, and, uh, and, and one, yeah, one of the things that, uh, that I found recently was I was at a uh, homeless encampment, uh, which Johnson reminded me of, uh, a homeless encampment in front of the LA City Hall, uh, which was set up by Black Unity. Uh, and it was a, it's a pretty big protest and it's pretty, it's very much in the news right now uh, because every night they go out uh, in front of the City Hall and they bring their megaphones and microphones and they make as much noise as possible in an attempt to get somebody from City Hall to talk to them. Uh, they've been out there for almost a week now and nobody has spoken to them. Uh, what has happened is that the uh, is that there's been is that the police department has stated that they are planning on raiding and dispersing the encampment. Uh, the encampment has not done anything violent, and the, they're they're in a park which during COVID nineteen, which means they're not really stopping anybody from doing anything. Uh, we're just at a point where it's it's like it it doesn't even seem that our government wants to speak to us. That they'd rather just put us down and they'd rather just oppress us. Um, and of course, I don't think Johnson wants to do that. And Johnson spoke about all these uh, about the programs for he's uh, programs he's pushing for the homeless, uh, programs he's pushing to make connections with individuals. Um, what I'm wondering is how we destigmatize that. Is how we bring that to a point where uh, people like me feel comfortable in approaching that because I don't really want to right now. 
I don't really feel safe doing that. So when you ask that question, feel approaching it in what sense? I mean, could you just maybe elaborate a little more on that? Uh, for example, you mentioned organizations uh, connecting uh, connecting uh, Native, Native Americans uh, to politics, uh, to civics in their nation and municipally. Uh, I am partially Native American, uh, but I'm not, uh, it's very small percentage of me. Uh, but if, if a Native American man uh, who isn't very, uh, isn't very not well knowledge on politics, uh, wants to learn about it uh, when he looks at, for, say, the Black Unity Project or he listens to Marnita's story and Lauren's story about trying to get the vote uh, and he hears all these things about how these organizations uh, end up not really helping us, why should he Why should he try to approach that? Why should he try and work with that? Well, I think like at a more foundational level, right, and you mentioned this around LA and in the government, you know, the government isn't some separate thing, even though it feels like it is. And I, and I totally understand that um, sense as well, because sometimes when I work with other levels of government, it feels like this, you know, thing, but I mean, at a foundational level, the government is literally the people, you know, and, and it's only operating through the consent of people. And I think that's why we need to continue, continually challenge the systemic racism and continually challenge the work that's being done because it's not producing, in many cases, outcomes uh, for the people and is reinforcing injustices. And so, you know, I would say that when you see something like around the ballots, for instance, um, they come out uh, in, in the issues there, that's absolutely something that we need to address and solve. I would, um, you know, I think the outcome is the same in the sense of if it is disenfranchising individuals because they don't have access uh, to vote in the way that they're choosing to, that's a huge problem. That's a foundational fundamental issue. Um, it is, at least from my perspective, not the um, intent that I see when I look at like a Georgia where it seems to me like there are very intentional efforts to deny black people and people of color um, from participating in like reducing polling places and things like that um, down so that there's eight hour lines. I know we take very seriously trying to increase participation um, here and we pride ourselves here on having uh, strong levels of participation. But just in, in general, I think that um, you asked like why why approach it or get involved in it? Because I think like we need to disrupt the status quo in order for there to be change. And it's, you see that it is getting involved in it that ultimately changes things over, over all of history we've seen is that as people being discontent with the status quo, pushing back against injustice, it really actually changes things. And, and I don't think it's gonna be um, nearly as effective if you're not involved. So I'm glad that you are. Um, and, and getting involved in these many ways and keep going. Yeah, I think that's a, a really interesting answer. I'm curious as to what your perspective is or what your response would be, I guess, to people who are either fed up with or 
not interested in or actively resistant to electoralism and specifically um, to the idea that the most important uh, civic activity or civic responsibility one has is the vote. Um, yeah, as a as an elected civic official, I'm I'm interested to hear what your perspective is on that. Yeah, I think it's tough because I mean, like when I look at and I think about like the U.S. Constitution and, and the checks and balances, it seems to me like a lot of that structurally is set up to reinforce the status quo um, and to prevent progress from occurring. And so um, I have a lot of frustration with that in general. I think there's also a lot of like unintentional. Um, so, and by the way, that to me seems intentional structure at a federal level and how that's set up to reinforce the status quo um, and prevent progress. I think um, when I take my experience when I work for like Target Corporate and then now with the city, I think there's a lot that's just like unintentional but still has the same outcomes of reinforcing the status quo. Um, and, and that's a lot of it's just like kind of human, uh, sadly, I don't, I don't want to like write it off because I'm not trying to minimize it in any sort of way, but I think it's like, um, you know, people like really busy with their jobs. They're used to doing things in a certain way. And um, it might be tough for them on a personal level to challenge um, the, their thinking around issues or how they're doing things. And I think we're like seeing this right now very much around um, the small businesses, predominantly like immigrant owned people of color owned that were damaged in, in the civil unrest that, you know, they're feeling left behind by the city and, and like uncared for by the city. Right. And, and, you know, um, and I don't think anybody if, at the city, if you ask them any staff that like reinforce kind of the, the process oriented um, status quo, I don't think if you directly ask them like, Hey, you know, what's your role in this? Are you complicit in that? Are you like doing everything you can to help small businesses? I don't think they would, you know, say like, oh, you know, who cares about the small businesses? I think they say, yeah, we care and value these small businesses, but it's like that self-examination and, and that reflection that's um, really important in that. But, you know, you, you bringing it back, I mean, you said electoral politics. You know, I look at like Ilhan Omar, Congresswoman Omar, she actually st uh, started in, in my office, was my campaign manager, um, and she's like disrupting the conversation at a national level, which I think is phenomenal and fantastic and we need more of that and the squad right now is like four arguably now there's a fifth like what if the squad was you know 300 400 in congress right like what would the world look like and what could um, get done and that starts with uh, at a very basic level right um having uh people willing to fight the status quo and fight for the people um being supported in running for office, being developed as candidates, um, having people volunteer and help get them elected and ultimately voting them in and then them disrupting, um, disrupting the system in a, in a good way, right? I think like you hear these uh, like conservative media talking points about like, oh, well, they wanna tear down the system and all that. It's like, you know, why is that like a, a bad thing for, for like, they say that and the whole thing is happening too around, by the way, like the, the public safety conversation, they make it sound like it's like a zero sum game, right? Like, oh, in order to make a 
for a more just system for black people that's going to take away from white people or something like that. And I think that is completely backwards. I think it's bad for everyone um, when the system is unjust, particularly people of color, particularly black people, particularly indigenous people, but it's also not good for white people. Um, and, and it's just, it's, yeah, I think outdated, uh, outdated thinking and, and we've got to challenge it and change it. And Carlo, I, I, saw, I, you, totally. I saw Carlo want to say something though for a second. Just, did you have something to say, Carlo? You had your hand up for a second. Uh, no, that was something else. So. You're just doing something else? Okay, good. Elijah, was, Elijah wants to go. Yeah, no, uh, uh, no, I, I, uh, totally agree, uh, Andrew Johnson. Um, one of the most recurring and frustrating arguments I get to, I get into, um, when it comes to issues of public safety and particularly, uh, around police brutality, police excess, um, defunding the police, etc., is... Um, when generally a white person will, will say, well, why don't you care when white people are being shot by the police? Or why, uh, why does it only matter when a black person is shot by the police? And it's just, it's very odd to me because the only people I ever hear care kind of about, um, white people being shot by the police or police brutality against white people are like organizations like Black Lives Matter. Um, like that is where I have heard, like, those are, are the sources from which I've heard. Elijah's <laughs> like, sitting outside and having car alarms go. Okay. Okay. I think we're good. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Those are the sources from which I've, I've heard pretty much every story that I've heard of, um, like extreme uh, police excesses against um, people in general, but in particular, like white people. Um, and it's always so blatantly clear to me that the people who try to make this argument never actually cared about police brutality against white people in the first place. So they just want an excuse to either charitably, one, they're just comfortable with their status quo um and are against change like on a blanket level like they're blanketly against change or two they just actively don't care about even the uh even the demographic they are purporting to care about um well interestingly yeah. enough elijah i've been saying this a lot lately is like when people ask me that question i'm also really in, in interested in the idea that when a white person gets killed by somebody, um, we often call the person who kills them a criminal. And my one of my observations is that, so when I'm walking down the street and a white person says to me, go back to where you came from. And I grew up in a little all white town in the Pacific Northwest and I was the only black person in town and I was there a couple of years ago. And you know, I was literally standing in the house that I grew up in and a person came out of the house and said, you need to go back to where you came from. And I was actually standing in front of the house I came from. <laughs> you know, like I couldn't be more from the place I came from on that block, on that street. And that, you know, until we had the video of Ahmad Arbery, until we had the video of Elijah McClain, those weren't considered crimes. And many of them have not yet been, you know, charged with a crime. So even when they, you know, who's considered a criminal, part of the reason we don't 
hey, in the city of Minneapolis, you know, Councilman Johnson, the only person who's really been ever charged and put in prison was Noor for killing a white woman, right? Like, so even with the police, a white woman was shot by a black officer, um, our first Somali officer, actually. And, you know, he was actually charged as a criminal. But, you know, so there's this standard also of who's a criminal and who's just a good person who's fearful, right? Like, well, their way of life is changing. Like, you know, as opposed to saying like, hell y'all, hell bells, your life way of life should have changed a long time ago if we were actually this inclusive, equitable society. Like, you know, it's like that video where the, the, the what's her name, Deborah, where she says, you're lucky we don't, we just want equality and not revenge. You know, like we're still just wanting equality and not revenge. And it's, and that's still a bridge too far in 2020 that we might deserve equity. Um, and anybody have thoughts about that? I see, I see you, um, Councilman Johnson, right? Do you want to comment on tag team us on that one? Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And, and, you know, the other piece too, that we oftentimes, um, you know, discuss and, and, and bring up is so critical is it's, it's just not enough to say like, okay. And I think LBJ actually had a great quote on this. It's like, you know, it's not enough to just say like, okay, like you're free now to be like treated equally. Like you actually have to go back and undo the past harms. And in, unless you do that, like you're never going to have equity. And so it takes intentional effort um, to correct those past harms. And, you know, it's- And actually there's current harms happening. I have to say- and, I have Yeah, yeah. I have an amazing leadership team and it is not lost on me that I'm 58 years old and founded a really innovative thing. And I'm noticing that my leadership team, which is wildly talented and of color, they're not, I'm not seeing them get these huge job opportunities. People aren't recruiting them away. They should be stealing my team, right? And instead they're like, oh, well, we need more mentoring programs for young people. Like, we don't need mentoring programs for Carlo. We hired Carlo at 14 and he was ready for the job, right? Like, so like really like this idea that we're just underdeveloped blobs that it, it, the real problem is we need a program to get us up to level as opposed to the program that gets white people just to, to give up this notion that we aren't equal. Like, yeah. did you read the, do you read the New York Times? Do you read the New York, any of you read the New York Times on here? There was a story um, on the front page over the weekend. And it, again, it was, I, I don't see this in the news very often, right? So we always are around the country talking about understanding the Trump voter, right? And they always have these stories about, well, they're fearing for their way of life going away. And they're always positioned as real Americans. They're the real Americans. Like, so Elijah and Carlo and white chocolate over there and Lauren, we're not the real Americans, although we were all born in this country, you know, like, well, Andrew would probably, white chocolate would be considered a real American probably, but these people were just making statements in this article. And the, the journalists gave, I, I don't mean like, even, they, they said like, they hate us on the coast. They hate, they hate our way of life, really? 
where's evidence of that? Like I didn't, I used to live in LA. I didn't really think about people living in Iowa all that much. And it certainly wasn't because I hated them. It's because I was busy living my life in LA, right? Like um, I'm not hating on people who live in the country. I grew up in the country, right? Most of us, even many of us who live in the city are one generation from farms, right? One generation from rural areas. I know Lauren is, Elijah's, when you, uh, you know, I know you are one gener two generations out. Um, and so that this narrative of who a real American is and the work that needs to be done, I feel like it needs to be inverted in some way. That the presumption is that we are underdeveloped and it's been logical all this time um, for us not to have access. And But that was just white supremacy, right? It wasn't actually, my ex-husband used to say, if we were really stupid, they wouldn't have had to outlaw reading, right? Like, we wouldn't have wanted to read if we were dumb, uh, you know? And so I, I think that there's a, 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 a functional problem about who's criminal and who isn't. Um, a couple weeks ago, we had Sam Nadelli on, who is um, at, I can't remember, it's Tawana, I'm trying to remember the name of the org. Uh, anyway, it's amazing. It's a development for POC and business development incubator. Um, but he pointed out um, a fact I had never heard before, that in, in the United States annually, wage theft of poor people, hourly workers, is larger. It's a 15 to $17 billion a year. It eclipses all other property crimes. So robbery, all those crimes, eclipses it. Um, and it's and it's literally enacted against the poorest of us, right? People with no power, people who are hourly workers, who have their wages stolen by the wealthiest. And nobody suggests that the people who are stealing the wages of the poor don't deserve to live in a nice neighborhood, right? But they constantly say the poor don't deserve to live in a nice neighborhood. So it's even this valuation of property over humans and wealthy property owners, even if they're horrible human beings, we give them the doubt. And I just kind of want to answer, or that wasn't really a question. You just get to follow up on that whole word. Oh yeah, and I certainly, and I hope there wasn't uh, any- uh, No, you, were, you don't have to- that, that, well, and so around the underdevelopment part, my, my point is that if a company has, for instance, passed over a, a, a black employee for promotions time and time again, it's not enough that they finally stop passing them over and promote them. What about all the lost wages, all the lost um, equity that worker put in over the years? And, and you just can't gloss over that or overlook that. It's, so it's, to me, it's not good enough. Justice is not enough to just start doing the right thing. It also has to be an accounting for um, all the harm, the collective harm that's added up. So, so hey, you guys, Carlo and Elijah, ask one last question and then we wanna go to Circle Sharon because Councilman has to run to another meeting in about 15 minutes and we wanna- Got it, got it. Yes, uh, no, and I think what you're, uh, I added on to what you were referring to makes me think, of course, of like reconstruction um, and how much of an absolute bleep show that was, <laughs> um, intentionally so, in terms of a failure of both. It's one of those, uh, the system isn't broken, the system is working exactly as intended um, kind of situations um, where they're 
perhaps was an accounting of what was owed and the back dues and um, what would what was needed to not just move forward but to make good on past wrongs and then systematically intentionally and kind of insidiously it was not done um and it was in fact laws were put in place to prevent it from ever being done um or from at least being done during the era of reconstruction and then uh immediately after um and i think that bears a lot of relevance i think to the way to this conversation that we're having about defunding or abolishing or reforming the police um where i think amusingly a lot of people are kind of framing it in this as this like reconstruction style system where the police will just be gone suddenly snap and then it's almost like their goal is this almost kind of Christian end times style goal where what they want to see is chaos. What they want to see is uh, Sodom, Gomorrah, burning down, pillars of salt, et cetera, et cetera. Um, <laughs> so that um, they could then put back in place an even more rigorous and even more powerful uh, institution in the place of the police force. Um, or put in more draconian, like Jim Crow-ish style laws, um, justified by um, these, like whatever unrest or chaos is caused by um, a brief uh, vacuum in power and authority. Um, that was an open-ended comment. Yeah. I mean, you're spot on with that. I, I heard a, a quote from uh, Ben Shapiro the other day, who's like the this conservative uh, talk show host. And he was asked like, well, what would your solution be as an alternative to, uh, um, you know, uh, deconstructing police departments and building new public safety systems? His, his answer was, I would flood black communities uh, with so many police officers, you know, da, 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 da. So then to the point where there'd be no crime and then there, you know, businesses would come in and provide opportunities, all this stuff. I'm thinking like, you're going to flood communities with so many police and over-police everybody? I'm I'm pretty sure, by the way, some cities have tried that uh, and it's been horrible uh, and and just perpetuated uh, racist outcomes. I feel like there's like six Spike Lee movies about just that very thing. Weird. (laughs) When they're not about good hair and light skin. Um, hey, Car- Carlo, I saw you trip your mic on, make, went live. Uh, well, I'd like to connect this whole thing back to a wonderful and thought-provoking quote from Malcolm X, uh, in which he states, if you stick a knife in my back nine inches and pull it out six inches, that's not progress. If you pull it out all the way, that's not progress. The progress comes from healing the wound that the blow made. They haven't even begun to pull the knife out. They won't even admit the knife is there, end quote. Uh, I think at this point, we're kind of at the second stage of the quote with the knife six, six inches out, three inches in, uh, and still there are people who won't even admit it's there. Uh, and I'm just wondering how uh, you as a city councilman are, are uh, making efforts to uh, educate, uh, af- uh, educate Euro-Americans who have trouble understanding this objective fact. 
Yeah, and it's a conversation that I've been having nonstop uh, with residents in the ward. Um, that through my role on uh, the Intergovernmental Relations Committee, I've been having with legislators uh, around the need because once you, I mean, this is a, a very pertinent conversation to us, to folks that are in suburbs, exurbs, rural Minnesota. Um, you know, they're not steeped in this. And so their, their take on it is a lot um, different and they don't see the need for change in the same way. Um, but yeah, it is just relentless, endless conversations and work on this. It is very frustrating, like um, Elijah said about um, just like the conversation of, oh, you're gonna just abolish and there's nothing there, you know, to cover safety needs, things like that, no, no functionality, right? Um, and I feel like by now we should have gotten past that uh, part of the conversation, but it seems like we're constantly stuck in that part, spinning our wheels, and a lot of it's being reinforced by um, the media, unfortunately, uh, that loves to, to uh, it seems like, run with sensational headlines that perpetuate um, really damaging narratives um, that, you know, omit factual information that's important to understanding this issue better. Um, and so it's really frustrating. Um, and so it's just kind of like endless conversations and lots of backyard conversations with constituents on, on this. And I gotta say, like, it's, it's, it's exhausting. And I, and I can't imagine what it would be like to be black or indigenous or person of color and constantly not being able to ever get a break from that, right? And having to live the injustices and then, and then, you know, not like I have so much privilege being able to like come home after a long, exhausting conversation with neighbors, feeling like I made good progress or whatever, but then like to be able to escape mentally um, that for at least a couple hours and try to recharge my batteries, you know? Did you vote to defund the police? Uh, I did vote to, well, so I've, I've been on this, I was on the stage at Powderhorn. Um, I supported moving money away to uh, violence prevention work, um, for moving a number of, a huge number of calls actually over away from police to three and one, to moving out the communications function from MPD, um, to supporting the resolution on transforming community safety. So yeah, like I've been, a uh, part of this work. I, I expand upon it because like, I, I think we've gotten like, to me that just saying defund the police, like it's like, there's so much more, it's like a uh, much more expansive effort. And so I always push back on like, or when talking about it, like try to draw in these different elements and help um, share like what it is, right? Well, what I heard somewhere that like something like 65% of all calls to the police are actually calls that would be much better served by having like a public health worker or a mental health worker or some other kind of social worker that it's not a crime. It is, you know, somebody who has a child that's in distress or it's a, a wellness call or a check on somebody that turns, when the police come, they turn it into, you know, like, like even the first call of somebody seeing somebody in their neighborhood acting suspicion. Like, you know, I, I keep going back to Elijah McClain what was he doing? He was walking down the street. He wasn't doing anything, right? And somebody, and the police came and 
you know, killed him. And and what was he even doing for the police to think they needed to put him on the ground, right? And he was somebody on the autism spectrum. Like, so I, I think a lot of our listeners and other people, I, I've been a victim of rape. I've had bad things happen to me in my life, you know? So I think it gets scary to people thinking like, wait, you're gonna take away, like, you're not gonna charge rapist anymore? Like, as opposed to, well, wait, if 60% of the calls, well, is everybody supposed to have a gun? You know, like, what would you say? Like, yeah. Oh, no, I was just saying, is I think it's higher than 60% of the calls. I mean, it is a huge number. And, you know, for people that have trouble connecting with this idea, um, I talk about, like, what would this be like if it was in another um, setting that maybe we'd be able to better relate to? So I think about, like, in the medical field, if you go in for a medical appointment, um, and they sent in two surgeons armed with scalpels to every single appointment. So like you got a, you need a flu shot, you got depression, a backache, or uh, uh, an appendicitis, right? Each one of those, they sent in two surgeons armed with scalpels. Like they'll know how to give you a flu shot. Like they probably know a decent amount about depression or mental health. Certainly not as much as a psychologist though would. And for the backache, they might not have you do physical therapy, they might just jump straight to doing a discectomy. So you look at this and you say like, okay, well, if we send in two surgeons armed with scalpels every medical call, what can we say about this? One, it's really wasteful and inefficient. Two, it's probably not maximizing the outcomes for each type of call. And three, it's increasing the risk of harmful intervention. And so, yes, there are scenarios where you're going to want one or two surgeons, um, but they're very rare. And so you're going to instead want like a nurse, a psychologist, a physical therapist. And so we accept in the medical field that there's an array of specialists who are there to help, who are trained in, in really the right uh, response. Why can't we accept that around public safety? Why is it so hard for folks to wrap their heads around some folks, you know, that that we would want, like if there's a neighbor dispute, right? Why would we send out two armed officers for a, a, a nonviolent dispute between neighbors that really is more about like conflict resolution and arbitration, right? If somebody's playing music loud, why would we send out armed officers? Is it the threat that they could, you know, um, escalate things into violence that's gonna get compliance? It shouldn't be, right? Um, but as we're talking about all this too, I don't wanna lose sight of the the fact not only the root causes that lead to um, crime in general in society, but also the community responsibilities around this. Like in each one of these cases, almost when we look at um, a situation where there's a police involved shooting, like there was in most cases, somebody that called 911 um, on the front end. And so what, what was their role? Why did they call? Was it justified? And what could they have done in, in this case? And I think Frankly, George Floyd's murder has had a lot of folks um, re-examining that, right, and, and what it means. And I actually saw a lot of that playing out in War 12 around firework calls. So um, after George Floyd's murder, lots and lots of fireworks going off. And so it was really fascinating because a lot of neighbors, like, you know, fireworks have all these issues of, you know, terrorizing um, lots of people. PTSD, animals, keeping babies up at night, all they're dangerous, they'll burn down garages, injure people, all these things, right? And so there's plenty of reason not to light off illegal explosive fireworks. Um, and, and people 
generally a lot of residents don't like it. So to watch residents like taking this lesson they learn, like, well, maybe my first response shouldn't be call the police. And then going out there and trying in different ways, um, you know, to approach neighbors and just have a conversation. And in, in some cases, they're really successful. Um, in other cases, they weren't. In some cases, their approach was a great one. In other cases, it wasn't. Um, and, and I think it's, I'm glad to see a lot of reflection, uh, you know, happening. Um, and, and Marnita, certainly, you know, we, we were part of a, a meeting with neighbors where there's a lot of blocks that continue to stay organized and are working on um, anti-racist work. Uh, and are, are trying to keep the momentum going. And so I think- you know, and, and we're gonna be reaching out because Alondra, Alondra Cano just reached out to us. We were already working with, of course, uh, the <laughs> vice chairperson, VCP, um, uh, Andrea Jenkins, we hope we, we'll, we'll be able to present. We'll reach out to your team to tell you about what we're up to. We think your neighborhood's gonna also wanna be in. Um, we're actually looking at major funding. Um, so, because we think, this is work that we actually want it not to be paid for by the city so that it's held by the people collectively as opposed to top down so that it's actually the voice that it can be used in other neighborhoods it's not viewed as like you know this organizational thing but um as i know that you have to run to your i'm so glad it was a wonderful conversation we so enjoyed having you team table loved having you here we always have a, a ritual at the end of um our any conversation we have, we call it circle sharing. It's just one sentence or a couple sentences. And we always end with this series of conversations about what is one hope you have for the future of your own community. And the hope for my community is that it builds bridges with all my other neighborhoods and actually becomes one unified city across race, class, and culture that really honors and recognizes everybody. And I'm gonna throw it to our guest Councilman Andrew Johnson. Yeah, you know, I, I always think like, you know, how do you emerge better? And I think that my hope is that through all of this pain and, and um, just terrible, horrible injustice that, and injustices, that we can emerge stronger and end up in a better place. I mean, you know, that's, I don't want to think that any of this has been, you know, um, just in vain or that we haven't learned lessons and that we actually implement um, changes and, and actually lead to significant measurable change. Because so oftentimes it feels like, you know, um, an injustice happens and everybody gets upset and, and then like something else happens a week later and like attention shifts. And I just don't want that to keep happening. And so I just want to see the momentum stay forward and that we end up in a better place and stronger and, and better. So. Choose somebody to throw it to. Uh, Elijah. Um, I hope, my hope for my community is that we're willing to stick it out through trying something new and uh, resisting this, trying something against the status quo in resistance to the status quo, creating a new status quo, and that even though it's scary, even though there will be failures and starts and stops, that we actually commit to doing so. Um, and that we don't just 
throw it throw it all away just because I don't know uh, so, some problems will continue to rear their head because to be honest there is no flawless law enforcement system there is no flawless public safety system there 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 is no nation that has perfected this um and yeah so that is that is my hope for my community is that we uh lean bravely into trying new things with a stick-to-itiveness and i will pass it to mr inzera thanks elijah uh, I'm going to second that. I think pushing towards the discomfort um, because like we mentioned several times throughout this, there's a lot of people staying comfortable with what's happened. And they think that is and specifically with law enforcement, how it's operated is, you know, it's comfortable. I've seen it, how it works and I only trust this way and we'll just train them better. Next, that's not going to work out, push towards discomfort, push towards restructure, reform, um, and continue to um, gain more knowledge and and take action because the, the, the people that are sitting back and just uh, being ignorant to the whole situation, such as that Ben Shapiro quote, uh, is incredibly harmful. Uh, so I pass it to uh, Carlo. Um, I hope that we can all, uh, I hope that my community can all uh, individually accept the idea of researching and understanding the issues around us uh, because we had a very informed discussion today. We threw out a lot of very interesting statistics. Uh, we threw out a lot of very interesting facts uh, and from it, we all learned. Uh, and not everybody has these opportunities, uh, but everybody has the ability or everybody should have the ability uh, to independently learn uh, either through reading, uh, through writing even, uh, just talking to somebody on the street are just dedicating themselves to get and gaining this knowledge. Uh, and it seems like in the United States, we, we, we don't often do that. And we don't often talk about doing that. Uh, but it's something we should all dedicate ourselves to. I'll pass it on to Lauren. Thanks, Carla. Mine's actually very similar to yours. Um, my hope is that we have easily accessible information. Uh, again, I feel like we learned a lot on this call too. And I wish it was as easy as hopping on Instagram, you know, so that you could see the changes that are happening every single day. Um, I think that that would, that would help a lot more people get engaged. And I'll pass it back to Marita. I want to thank Councilman Andrew Johnson for being here with us today. But as we go, I just shared screen. I love this photo. This is Kamala with our co-host of our podcast. Carlo, and it's a really special photo, I think, and his mom shared it online. And um, But what I love about this photo um, is her engagement with him, um, that you can actually tell she, look at her hands, look at her face. Like this, this isn't, uh, I, was, I just really like this. And I like the idea that she's listening to voices like Carlo's, right? Um, so uh, I, I'm not trying to have you vote for somebody or do anything that's not we are not partisan here but i do like it when i see political leaders listening to young voices responding um and you can't fake that that's that's something that you know your fine motor muscles you like she's actually enjoying his company and enjoying this conversation and i think this is a cool photo um and so i want to thank you all i know you have to jump off i only left i was going to leave you 15 minutes but you were such a great guest so you can jump off, Andrew, um, and go to your next Zoom. I'm sure you're on Zoom all day. <laughs> it was an honor to have you. 
Thank you so much. much. Thank you all. Thank you. Wonderful. Thanks. And saying goodbye from Marnita's table. It's been an honor to have you here at Weather Together because that's what we're all doing, weathering the storm together. Marnita's table and team table, Elijah Carlo, white chocolate today, and Lauren, sign off. It's been an honor. Ooh, we're out of recording.